Rufus, uh, how have you felt about our timing the market segments? Has it been fun to talk about timing the market? Yeah. I mean, it's it's more fun to talk about it than it is to do it. <laughs> Meaning like you don't know how effective it is. But Hull Tactical, who this podcast is brought to you by, is an ETF that actually allows people to get the best of the experts in timing the market. They believe that using data and analytics, they can actually time the market. So it's interesting because do you think you can time the market in sports? And what we've said is maybe, maybe not, unless you're like a top-down better. But Hull Tactical will tell you that you can time the market in the real world. And if you want to find out more about Hull Tactical and take the Hull Tactical quiz, it's available at hulltactical.com, which is a, a quiz that... Have you taken the quiz yet, Rufus? I haven't, Jeff, but we should both take it and see who scores better. I already took it and I did well, but I'll take it again because I'll do even better this time. And on this week's podcast, we have Gil Alexander, who is a sort of OG media person in the sports betting space. Uh, Rufus and I have a long diatribe about baseball and the Orioles. And then we finally give you a couple picks. And the way our picks have been going, you probably want to fade them. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not the typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a out with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. Where Rufus, it's a solemn, sad day for you. Your Orioles are out of it. What what say you? Does this is this like a classic case of a team completely overachieving and being a little bit ahead of where they really should have been, but the priors are still the priors and Texas was a better team, or is it just the three game sample size and that's that's you know, that's what we do. So I don't think Texas was a better team necessarily. They were certainly better these three games by mile. Um, I do think you're right, though, that the Orioles did overachieve a little bit. I mean, if you look at their some of the metrics, like their batting average with runners in scoring position was like near the near or at the top of the league. And and I don't believe that being better there relative to the league than with, you know, nobody on base or runners on first base or something like that is is predictive. And so they essentially had some good timing luck offensively and they did very well in in close games and extra inning games. And we know that that's probably going to regress a bit. Um, I do think they were, I think that they're trending up overall. Um, I don't think they'll win 101 games next year. I mean, I hope they do, but I think that they're going to be more talented next year than they were this year and probably more talented the, the year after. And so I think this is kind of the start of something big. And so it was certainly disappointing to see them get swept um, by the Rangers. And by the way, this was the first time they've been swept since before Adley Rutschman was called up in May of 2022. So they, they set a record. They had the most series series is without getting swept by any team since 1914 or something crazy like that, basically in a hundred years. And so it's the timing of getting swept was not, not great, but uh, I, the Orioles brought me a lot of joy this year. I, I thought they were, it was, it was great to follow their journey and they were really were a, a, a easy team to root for a fun team to root for. And so, you know, 31 out of 32 teams are not going to win the world series, but that doesn't mean the season was a failure. And I really, I, I think I've, as a fan, I'm enjoying the process a lot more now than maybe I used to and realizing that like, it was a really enjoyable experience for me. And I'll say this, even the two games in Baltimore this weekend, the Orioles lost, but like I had so much fun and I don't know if 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I would have been able to say that after two kind of crippling losses, but I was with all these people that all this energy in a beautiful place with my brother who I love, like what could be better than that? And to, to kind An of Orioles win this and Orioles win. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. that would be better. Too soon. But, but to, I was at this, um, this bar in the East village called standings, which is a cool little dive bar. And it's owned by people from um, the DMV. And so I had, using Google and Reddit, I had found that there were going to be some Orioles fans watching there. And so I, I watched the game with um, 
with a few of our uh, a few people from Twitter and a few friends and a bunch of strangers in Orioles gear. And at the end of the game, you know, it after a minute or two, I kind of was like, I started to try to like, I, I clapped. I was like, we had a great season. You know, I was trying to like, and people know, I got nothing though. It was, uh, it was, <laughs> it was, it was awkward. Like crickets. What Mark, Mark was like, wait, you were trolling, right? I was like, no, I was like, no, that was like authentic, <laughs> but, but nobody else picked up on it or they were just too absorbed in their own thing. Cause I was kind of like, this has been a great run. Like you're just a positive individual, Rufus. And most people aren't quite as positive as you. But I'm I'm positive. I'm not positive about everything, but I think I've become more positive about being a fan. Right. Interesting. I mean, I've 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 gone through all the losing years. So, who do you uh, like in baseball going forward? Now, I mean, in the I, AL, I will say, what predict does, your predict your predict your World Series and your World Series winner, and I will do the same. It really, and this is by the way, this is not gambling advice. This is I've not run numbers like Jeff Jeff's person has. This is more just my dumb brain. It does feel like there are teams that get hot at the right time and teams that get cold. And the Orioles felt like a team, to be honest, going into the postseason, I I was believing and putting out all the positive vibes, but they'd been slumping for for a few weeks. They're all and in Texas, like it seems like they're they have a great lineup and they've just they were they were mashing the ball and they're hot at the right time. And they're a team that early in the season got you know, was, was hot. And then they had that, that stretch in early September where they were um, actually, I guess it was like August, September, where they looked like they might miss the playoffs. They were on the outside looking in and they were getting blown out by like, they got swept by the Astros in a series. And I, two of those games were like nine or 10 run losses. And so maybe it's because I want the Orioles to have lost to the team that goes on to win it all. But I, I think the, I think the Rangers, I'm going to take the Rangers coming out of coming out of the NL or the AL, I should say. And the other X factor there is I think Bruce Bochy is a really, really good manager. And as much as I hate to say it, I think he outmanaged Brandon Hyde in that series. I think Brandon Hyde's a good I think manager. Bochy's, but... I think Bochy just having watched him with the Giants for so long, I think he's a great manager. He's and like, he's I don't fantastic. have analytics behind that, but it's like, he just seems to be, he's, I think he's a great manager. And so. I will say, I think the Orioles used, I mean, the Orioles have used a lot of analytics like SIG, and Michael Elias have done fantastic jobs there. Um, and I know that the the bullpen usage probably is, it's not just Hyatt on his own. It's him in conjunction with, you know, with Mike and Sig trying to figure out how best to attack um, or how best to game plan. But I thought in the Orioles Rangers series, the Orioles were too quick to pull relievers. Like Coulomb came in in relief, for example, in the fifth inning of Bradish, and then I, he he got out of the inning, doesn't come back out in the sixth, right? And in a way, you're like banking on, like you might be playing matchups, but you're banking on the fact that all your guys are going to have it, or nobody's going to come out there and, and throw a dud. And like for two straight games, Jacob Webb did not have it. He gave up two big big home runs, and you know I would have liked to see like Coulomb get stretched out a little longer or a guy that is throwing well, maybe get to stay in a little longer. And I think Bochi did that with, was it game one or game two where I think it was game one where they started Haney Haney. Mm -hmm. And then he had this rookie lefty uh, Bradford, not Chad Bradford, some other Bradford. And, and he kind of, who had been a starter and he let him go like three innings. And so it's the pitching changes though are so hard because they're like the ultimate inability to second guess. Like even last night, in that game when, you know, when, uh, you know, Kramer, I would assume they had a super short leash thinking on him going into that game, like knowing that how important this game was and it could be a bullpen game. And, you know, the first inning he gives up a home run, no big deal. Second inning, he's got two very leveraged situations where the first one that he didn't get out of, I would have thought like, okay, just go get him. And then he gave up that three-run homer, and the game was essentially over after that. And so the thing with Kramer is he's unusual in the fact that he actually performs better uh, the more times he's been through the lineup. Which I'm not saying that signal or anything, but that has been the case for him this year. So I mean, I, I would think seems like an outlier. Maybe... The other the other thing is though the Orioles went with 13 position players and only 12 pitchers, and so yes, they had a day off, but 
but those first two games, they really, really heavily used their bullpen. I mean, they, they went what seven plus innings in game two. And, and, but the thing is they basically used everybody in game one too. And so, Oh, I'll, I'll, they did go to Kyle Gibson. who was going to be the game four starter, which I want to say, I don't think that made sense. Like, I don't think it was high enough leverage. Even if you think he's going to give you like a slight, be slightly better. It, it Like, what do you do game four then you bring, unless you're like, I'm going to bring it back Bradish on short rest, like to win the series, you need to win games three, four and five. I know there's no tomorrow, but at the same time, if there is a tomorrow, you do care about that conditional probability. You know what? There was a so, tomorrow because it is today. Well, <laughs> right. But my point, my point is that if you're sacrificing a ton of win probability. Yeah. Tomorrow, I mean, it's survivor or, or for game it's four survivor thing for game right? four, even if right, like you want to maximize your chances of winning a series, not yeah. just one game. And so, the whole thing that's that a like, really oh, hard gonna... way for a pitcher to that's a really hard way for a manager to think though it is i think but i think overall this year i mean i think the orioles i think hyde managed very much to win each individual game and it resulted in the bullpen being overused in certain situations i mean and, you asked and... kyle you you were sort of a harbinger of this with when you asked kyle Bodie the same thing around the use of yeah. the bullpen and whatnot so he had a good answer too i, I think he did right about how uh or it might have been somebody else i, I might have did I say it on multiple podcasts? I know. But, are you a pod alterer? No, I mean multiple bet the process podcast. Oh, okay, good. But, but you also go on the fact that like the Orioles aren't weren't actually supposed to be here. This, you know, and, and the yeah. fact that so yes, I'm gonna pick the Rangers. All that said, sorry for the Orioles the tangent, but I mean the Braves are so good. Like they are just so much better than every other team. Um, though their pitching, you know, is a little bit um banged up i should say i mean they have they have two they have a really strong top of the rotation but i'll say with with the way the nl is like the days off every other day you don't need to have a deep rotation so i'm gonna go with it's gonna be braves and rangers and will bruce bochi manage to pull the magic he did with the giants where like every even numbered year he won the world series it was what 2010 who's this this madison Baumgartner gonna be 2014 did they win three is that right I think they won three. Yeah. Yeah. And they were never, they were never the best team. No. Like clearly the Rangers are not the favorite, but I don't know. And I don't know if you remember Jeff in 2011, how that world series ended. Was the Rangers have never won a world series 2011. They were up three games to two on the Cardinals were up seven to four going into the bottom of the eighth. They were on the road and gave up a run in the eighth. And they gave up two runs in the bottom of the ninth with two outs on there was a ball that Nelson Cruz probably should have caught in right field. Um, they got a homer for Josh Hamilton in the top of the 10th inning to go back up two runs and then gave up two in the bottom of the 10th and then lost in the 11th and then lost the series. Like that's a crippling way to lose. And so I will say, I don't, I don't know what kind of fan base the Rangers have given the fact that at Camden yards, I saw literally two Rangers fans. I've never seen that few number of road fans at any stadium in any game ever. But, you know, I think if the Rangers won, like that 2011 defeat had to be really tough to take. Okay. We're going to jump into our timing the market segment brought to you by Hull Tactical, which is an ETF leveraging the best of high frequency trading principles in an ETF, making available to retail investors. So, Rufus, the timing the market segment this week has to do with the weather. So, how would you? knowing that weather is going to start to become a factor in football, how would you think about timing the market best to take advantage of the weather? That's a good question, Jeff. And I think first off, the closer to game time you get, obviously the more certainty there is in a weather forecast. It's just like golf. What's interesting to me is looking at how much a market has already moved anticipating certain weather. So there's a game that I was looking at this morning which I think is a really interesting case study. It's the Northern Illinois versus Ohio. Ohio, yeah. Ohio, yeah. That game opened at circa at 57 and a half. It got bet down to 46 and a half in 12 minutes. Like it's a game where there is going to be, um, there's an, it's, it's a weather game. It's anticipated to be a weather game. But what I wanted to know was how much of that move, was this a bad line that circa hung or was it, was the market that confident or certain people that confident that uh, that the weather was going to 
have a big impact. And like, I wouldn't think the weather would have a 10 point impact on really any game outside of like a hurricane, but in which case I think it would have a bigger impact than 10 points. Um, but in that case, the market kind of held up at 46 and a half, but then went down, has gone down a few points since then, which I think is on weather. So I don't know if I have an answer to this, but to me, this is an interesting one. And like, why was the market, why did that line move 10 points there? And if you're banking on, you, you say this is a weather game, like how much, how much of that move was already factoring in the weather versus if you think the market overall underreacts to weather, how much room is there left for it to move further down? Okay. Second question on this. You got the 57 under, do you bet back the 44? I would only bet back the 44 if I thought it was positive EV. I mean, it's gotta be positive EV at this point. So you think, a th right. So your, your thought here is that a 13 point move regardless is probably too, too large a move. Irregardless. Yeah. But what if it was the WNBA All-Star? Was that the one? The WNBA All-Star game? Yeah. Where that got bet well, down that wasn't weather. Points. That wasn't weather related, no. I don't think. So my question was, was this like, did Circa just hang a bad number? Or was this actually like weather related or something else? And I even looked at injuries and the Northern Illinois has their best receiver out. Um, I can't say his name. It's it's, it's a very tough, it's a difficult name to say something of itch or some, um, but that, it, it's not the wide receiver that's causing that move. That's, that's the whole tactical time in the market segment of the week. Um, we're going to now bring in Gil Alexander, our guest, and then we'll talk to you guys all again on the other side. We now welcome in Gil Alexander to the bet the process podcast. And this is long awaited. Obviously we we've known Gil for quite some time, um, we were just kind of waiting for the really important right time to get Gil on. And, and this seemed like as, as much as one as any. So Gil, welcome. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, guys. For our seven listeners, um, most of which <laughs> know, I'm sure know who you are, but maybe there's one out of the seven that doesn't. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got to be in this business. Um, I was a broadcaster, but not in sports, not in sports betting. I was a uh, a DJ. Um, at a music radio station and several music radio stations, not several, but a few, but I was always betting sports. The long and short of it is when the advent of podcasting came to be, uh, as I was getting older and, and sort of saw the limitations in me, you know, introducing a, uh, I always use walk of flock of flame because it's the dumbest artist name I can think of. You know, I saw the limitations of me introducing a record from, uh, from certain artists at the age of 40, let's say. I sort of decided, you know, here's this new technology. This is pretty incredible because before podcasting, people tend to forget because we be become prisoners of time that it was just this mind blowing thing where it's like, oh man, like someone in Germany can hear me. Someone in, you know, Madagascar can hear me. Someone in Fort Lauderdale, no matter where I am on earth. And I happen to be in San Francisco. And so I decided I'm going to talk about sports betting because it's what I love. And I'm going to do something crazy. This is like 2000 when I first did it, but then I sort of took a break and came back and did it for real nonstop from 2010. What I decided was I'm going to actually talk about when I lose bets and talk about this as sort of uh, authentically as one can. And it's, it's, it's hard to imagine how simple a, a thought that was at the time, but how, you know, an industry that is often and, and correctly so described as, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, talkers who never lose a bet that was pretty innovative and for whatever reason it resonated back then. And so it grew sort of organically from then. And, uh, and after doing a podcast and a couple iterations for many years, sort of on a leap of faith, then I ended up at the Vegas stats and information network, which was Brian Musburger and Bill Aidey's brainchild and was the first sports betting network at uh, Sirius XM all day. So I'm going to go in reverse order of what we normally do. Sometimes we ask our guests questions at the end, and I'm going to ask you a question that I think would be interesting to you. And because you've seen so many gamblers with edge and gamblers without edge over the years, is there one person, or if there was one person that you would follow blindly from a sports betting perspective, who would it be? Um, can I, can I hedge on that question? Sure. And with an answer and sort of say, I don't think there is one person blanket. I think there is certainly a person for, each specific, maybe, maybe I could answer that per sport. Okay. Let's maybe answer I, that per sport. 
okay, if I, uh, you know, if I, if I went after, if I went after golf, for instance, right, Rufus, who's on your show, would be on the short list of that. I'd probably trust Rufus more than anybody in that. Um, if I was, by the way, we have good golf handicappers at Visa, but I think I had one golf event in one moment in time. I'd probably trust Rufus's numbers. If I were doing it in tennis, I will say my buddy Dan Weston, who works for Pinnacle and Betfair, I think I would trust Dan Weston uh, for something like that. I guess the point of the, the, that answer and these answers are, and I could go on, is that I think the more macro thing is what, what is it, you know, the one privilege I've had over the years, the one thing where I feel comfortable saying is I've probably been exposed to about as many sports betters, as many types as, I don't know, maybe anyone, maybe not, but I've, I've been exposed to a whole bunch. And what is clear is that it's a couple separate questions. One is what makes one good, what, what doesn't make one good, but also that specialization helps a great deal. And anybody who thinks that they can sort of blanket all sports and be good, it's probably not the best approach to it. So what do you, in terms of beyond specialization, what are some other attributes or characteristics that you think describe the best sports betters? The ability to overcome negative variance is the is the chief primary quality of it. I mean, I think you have to have some sort of mathematical basis. I think if you have no like there's a spectrum of sports betters, right, as we all know. Um, and Rufus, I if I'm describing you incorrectly, you'll tell me. But if you take the most numbers driven guy, the most robotic numbers driven guy, I don't want to make Rufus into a robot. Hey, I've, I've, he's on, yeah. If you're on one end of the spectrum, by the way, nice New York apartment, man. Very thanks. Nice. Thanks. Um, if you're on one end of the spectrum like that and you're on the completely other side of that spectrum, which is someone who's doing it smoke and mirrors, um, as we like to say, on a Thursday night coming into a mountain time zone from a Pacific time, whatever it is, um, I think that the answer sometimes lies, you know, along that spectrum often. But that if you're uh, my opinion is that if you're not doing anything rooted in any numbers at all, that you're probably doing this wrong. So I think you do have to have some sort of numerical uh, and metrics based thing to this. But the ability to overcome negative variance, money management, which we always hear about, but the, the, the ability to overcome negative variance is from a psychological standpoint. That, to me, is the biggest differentiator, the ability to see long term through things and to realize, hey, this short term streak, while we're all human and while mentally taxing for all of us when it happens, your ability to overcome that, I think, is a big differentiator. I like your point about the sort of having to have some sort of numbers basis because I mean I I would say I know you think I'm a pseudo robot or whatever but no um, but I think I mean what I do there's a whole lot of art involved too it, it's it's asking knowing which questions to ask but I think that even if I mean the, the sort of Pacific time zone to mountain time zone people right like how do you understand what that effect is like you have a basis of a number right and you can look and say okay. How much does this travel matter? How much does this weather matter? Rather than saying, oh, I think the market undervalues this, then you can actually say, well, I know how much it should be valued and how much the market is valuing it. But yeah, maybe that's and just by the way, I, being I, a robot. Your, your seven listeners, by the way, I, I, uh, they probably, if they don't know me, I obviously have the utmost respect for Rufus. Maybe it wasn't so obvious. So I was sort of saying that tongue in cheek. But I think, you know, to quote Roxy, I learned something with you every time that I talk to you. And I think that what you just talked about is you do know how to ask the right questions and therefore your inputs into your model make sense. If you don't have that first part, then the model means nothing in the end either. Right. So I, I definitely, I didn't mean to, to come across as, as calling oh, I don't that think you did. people take literally. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's the thing that people misunderstand often about analytics people is analytics. People aren't just looking at numbers without context, right? The whole point is that, we're trying to figure out if the numbers support a hypothesis that's out there, right? Ultimately trying to figure out what is the value. And this is, it goes back to like this deterministic versus probabilistic thing, right? What's the value of, you know, three time zone difference or five time zone difference or whatever. And it doesn't mean that that's the exact value in this case, but over a long course of time, that's what the value would be. And so it's like a distribution of outcomes and people have to get comfortable with the idea that it doesn't necessarily mean that in this case, the bills, you know, like last week is a perfect example, right? Like there was a lot of talk about the Jaguars staying in England and the bills coming out there. And, and it did seem very much like 
the Jags were acclimated, ready to play, where the Bills seemed like a team that had just gotten off a plane. And again, that's one case. And um, we often overreact to that one case, but there needs to be a way to try to quantify that impact. Yeah. And then we'll see another example of that this very week, right? Baltimore left on a Monday to London. Tennessee's waiting apparently till Friday again. So, you know, that'll either be more confirmation bias on something, or maybe it's not confirmation bias at all. I mean, math is at the heart of all this, right? I mean, just forget about handicapping. Simple, you know, when teaser prices are raised incrementally from minus 120 to minus 130 to minus 140, even minus 150 in some spots, you know, the average, I think the, the new sports better doesn't necessarily immediately toggle to, well, that raises my break even point incrementally as well if I'm to beat this at this price. So, I mean, everything really with sports betting is rooted in math and it's what makes it all so fascinating, obviously. The question becomes for people who do sports betting media like you guys, like me, what, and, and your audience is probably as smart as any. Um, I like to think that mine, given the landscape, is in the conversation. The question is, what percentage of the audience will you be able to make an impact on if, and I think this is the case with you both, your ultimate goal is to sort of lend a hand or teach or whatever that word is to, to help along. And you can only do what you can do to a certain point, right? It's only going to be a certain percentage. And then is there going to be a percentage that inevitably you have to realize is going to hear what you have to say and is going to say, eh, I'd rather do it my way. And you have to be okay with that, I think. I think I've come to that as well. Like when I first did a podcast, I was like, oh, I'm going to do everything perfectly right and I'm going to be super, you know. And you realize if you are to, to attract an audience, you have to be entertaining, you have to be insightful, and I, I, I don't think you have to shove that down people's throats. I think that's the biggest thing I've learned. I'm sort of rambling here, but I think this is a big point about the sports betting landscape right now is that we have a group of really sharp people. They do things all the right way, but there's almost a self-righteousness about it that I think doesn't get them to the, the widest net outcome that they actually would want to get to. And I think they have to have a little more humility in the way that they go about things. And I think you you attract a lot more people and will perhaps influence many, many more people if you take a less condescending approach to it. I know I'm going around and I know I'm rambling about a bunch of different things here, but it sort of got me to that point, which is if we are to sort of, you know, get that across that a lot of this is math, you're probably better off doing a lot of this math based. All of that is is not very entertaining content. And to make it entertaining and to make it palatable and to make it something that people will sort of, you know, infuse in, in their in their brains moving forward and help them win bets, I think you do have to do it in a way that is perceived as digestible, as entertainment as well. Does that make sense? Am I rambling? I mean, it's, it's, it's like when I was at ESPN and talking to Herm Edwards in, in the green room before, he was like talking about these route concepts. This was a, there was a game the Patriots had destroyed the Texans on. This is 2016. And like, he was talking about all these route concepts and, and why, um, why Bill O'Brien's offensive game plan there had no chance of working against the defense Belichick had. And I was like, this is like, I'm learning so much here, but it's the kind of thing he couldn't say on air. And so it's, you kind of have to dump things down a little bit. Otherwise you're going to be talking to just a handful of people. Well, and I don't even know if dumb things down is the phrase that I would be comfortable with. Let me, let me uh, Jeff. I'm, Least I'm, common I'm, denominator. Lowest yeah, common I, denominator, right? I apologize I for hijacking this because I'm not sure this is necessarily where you wanted to go with this. But I'm reminded, you guys were at Bet Bash, right? Or or you were, Rufus. Jeff, I don't know I if was. you were. I yeah. was. Jeff there. is too cool for school. That's not Jeff, true. Jeff is always too cool for school. So this one, there was a very much talked about panel, which um, our buddy Rob Pizzolo was on, our mutual friend Rob Pizzolo was on. And it got a lot of buzz because Darren Ravel, who, by the way, I have no reason to like. When I was a when I was even more of a nobody than I am now, he used to plagiarize tweets, just random tweets, not even clever tweets, but he would plagiarize tweets. So I, he's not a guy that I that I love, but I gave him all the respect in the world because he sit he sat there and he took so much incoming from a room. And by the way, the conference was great and the panel was super enjoyable. But it did occur to me that in the middle of that panel, that he had a lot of balls. He had a lot of onions for sitting there and taking incoming from a room that was 99.9% .9 against him, if not 
And he made a couple points in there that I thought were very valid that were kind of dismissed. And it has to do with what we're talking about, or at least where I hijacked this to what we're talking about, apologies, where it's like he said at one point, you have to understand that most people don't care what you guys say. And they pushed back on him. They're like, what are you talking about? You're a content provider. How could you say that? Well, he's right. He's right. Most don't. Most embedding want to do what they want to do. They'd rather be wrong their way than right the right way, which is kind of a metaphor for a lot of things in life. And the other big point that was made was at one point, Pozzola, who I loved, was referencing a couple people on gambling Twitter and sort of saying, you know, oh, we all know these guys are sharp. And Ravel pushed back on him and said, do we know that? And Pozzola was like, yeah. And everybody was sort of, it was the, uh, the echo chamber of, oh, yeah, we know they're here. No, we don't. We don't. And we tend to assume things about certain people that I don't think there should be a presumption of they're great. And we tend to kill others who we think are super duper square and who may not really get this as well as say you guys do. And I think in the end, we get, we get, uh, we get further with this industry. If, we, if our real goal is to sort of educate and inform, we should allow for more grace in all of that. And I think that that's a big problem in this industry right now. I do think we're quick to say if somebody is wrong about one thing, we're, we're, I mean, it's like cancel culture, right? It's like this person didn't do this correctly. Why can I trust them? And mm -hmm. I've done a lot of things incorrectly betting. I've made some dumb mistakes. Like if I'm judged by that, then, you know, we all have. Yeah. yeah and, and you're right. And it's especially, I mean, it's just like we, we criticize coaches in the NFL for, for essentially not stepping outside the box and doing the correct analytical things. And the reason they don't is because if they're wrong, if things or even if they're right, but things don't work out, they get a lot of heat because they're not doing it the same way. So I guess I would say that like, just because someone isn't handicapping things or going about things the same way, and because they maybe make a mistake on something that doesn't necessarily mean that what they're doing is completely invalid and has no signal, right? Just because somebody's model says this team has a 75% chance of winning and the market says it's a pick, like you'd say, you can be very dismissive of that model because the model is obviously not close to correct, but it still could have some signal somewhere. It still doesn't mean that this guy's thought process is completely flawed. There's just a couple of things here that, you know, I think, I think one, this is not unique to sports betting, right? This is, this is the world that we live in when it pertains to any kind of opinions, specifically when analytics are involved. And one of the reasons is because the analytics crowd has a cross to bear around the work that they do to get to the point of view that they do, right? Meaning like they want to represent that point of view because they worked hard to get to that point of view. And I think the real question that I would ask is how do we as a, you know, media entities that try to elevate the conversation around sports betting, how do we do that effectively while not like turning off the mainstream, right? Like we're, we're trying to make people understand how to be better betters or how to understand how to win more, but like we're, we're, we're doing it in a way where to your point, like we, we probably don't, we're not always the most approachable, right? We're not always the easiest to deal with. And so what's the advice there on how we do that better? You know, let me start by saying, I think there's very few people, if I'm to be honest, I think there's very few people who have enough sort of street cred in the business, have been around long enough, who are clearly smart, right? Like, I mean, that's the thing, like smart shows itself. If someone doesn't want to like you, they're not going to like you. But over time, your work speaks for itself. So you guys, you guys don't have to try to show that you're smart. You're clearly smart uh, in every way. So you don't have to worry about that. But I, I think about like, who are, the, who are the people in this industry that really are able to thread the needle where they have the respect of sharp betters, but yet don't talk down to the most novice better um, and are articulate enough or can explain things well enough in a linear fashion that gets across to that. And it's a short list. I mean, Drew Dinsick is one of those people, right? Uh, Adam Chernoff is another one of those people. It's a very, I mean, that's the thing. It's like thimble sized. And I think that that's the key to it all. I don't know that one can give a step-by-step -step directional, here's how you do it. But I think if you keep that as your North star, 
you'll go a long way towards that. I mean, that's the best advice I can give on this. And, and the Adam Chernoff example, I think, is interesting because I know, you know, I know he's a bit of a divisive person um, on Twitter, at least. Or, but I, I remember last it was a few years ago when he talked about his process to come up with an NFL total, um, like he how he started basically like his formula that he used that he learned kind of from bookmakers down in the Caribbean. And, and I thought even if that's not the way I would do it, I thought it was really interesting to get insight into his process whether it's a winning or losing process, and you can take right. something away from that. Well, let me, let me give an example of another guy that we all know, which is uh, Steve Fezzik. So I didn't know Steve Fezzik at all. When you don't know somebody personally, you come up with an impression of people through, sadly, through secondhand accounts, which none of us should ever do about anybody, but also from like, you know, social media um, personas. And Steve Fezzik is a former actuary. He's not a broadcast guy, but he's a former actuary who mathematically is probably as smart as anybody there is. And I've gotten to know Steve because we had a mutual friend, Todd Wishnev, and so we would play tennis. And so I've gotten to know him sort of organically. And he is the sweetest, loveliest guy in the world. And I've said to him, I'm like, Steve, you are so smart. You have so much to offer. Why on Twitter, X now? Do you have to be this person that points out everybody's mistake, whether it's bookmaker, whether it's better, whatever it is, when you have so much more to provide than someone like I could, for instance, from a sheer mathematical standpoint? And what I love about Steve is that he is actually able to look at himself. And when you say that to him, he goes, you know what, man, you're right. I don't know that I'm going to be able to help myself, but you're absolutely right. Now, he doesn't help himself and he keeps doing it. But I think that dynamic is a very common one in our little corner of the world. And I just don't think it gets us anywhere, I guess is what I'm saying. So one of the, one of the things that we've been doing in this, uh, we have, we have a sponsor these days and we talk a little bit about timing the market and, and you're an interesting person who's probably watched the market and understands the market. Are there any rules that you have around when to bet certain sports or how you think about the way the market moves? Like, in let's say college football, how it moves throughout the course of the week or the NFL, like are there are there differences in those markets that would make you more wary of betting, say Sunday for NFL or early for college or something like that? It's a great question. This is like a Rufus Wheelhouse question too, I think, which is to say that for me, like when I used to bet baseball every day, every year, I used to always say, I was like, I trust my numbers better than I trust the market. This is like 2012, 2013, 2014. I feel that way for tennis now, although this year was not as good as the previous three years. But I feel that way. Like when I when I make a tennis play, I'm not waiting to see what the market's going to do. I trust my number. I don't necessarily care what the market's going to do. When it comes to the NFL or college football or any other of our major sports, I'm not smart enough. I know like Las Vegas Chris is great at this. There's a lot of people who are way better than I am at this. I'm not smart enough to necessarily anticipate where markets are moving. It brings up an interesting question about CLV, which I think is a tried and true conversation. I'm sure you guys have had it with a million people. But I have to tell you, I always cringe a little bit. Like, I mean, I was reared on El Elihu Foistel used to write this pinnacle newsletter under the pseudonym Simon Noble in the 90s. It was kind of how I was reared on sports betting. And, you know, in those days, what I was super influenced by was, yeah, the, the, the rate at which you beat the closing line is going to be the best indicator of what kind of better you will be moving forward. And I sort of adhered to that for, for many years. It's gotten to the point now where I think we're in such a different world that I think when people try to explain what is happening with lines sometimes it's, sometimes you can but i think there's so many other times that there's so many there's so many other dynamic going on that to even try to explain it is like a fool's errand i don't know if you guys agree with that at all but that's uh again i've sort of taken that on a tangent so i apologize but i, I hope that was a partial that, i think that's goes back to this theme that we've had for the last few weeks which is the deterministic versus probabilistic when a line moves it's not deterministic you don't say like oh it was because of this there's a bunch of different reasons that it might have moved right and ultimately you don't know those and so there's just like some distribution of it so i, I think that's an interesting way to look at it uh yeah, I mean, any... it, it could be like the auto mover chris like moves on you know a certain amount here off, off like they had a, a guy that is 
has very big limits or something and they move off of it just because they know that, you know, they don't want him to pop it for another 200,000 at the same price or something like that. And then the market follows, right? I mean, there's so many different reasons the line moves. And if you look at like the line moves for a book like Pinnacle or Chris, where they do have auto movers, you see a lot more frequent moves than a book like a DraftKings, a FanDuel, even a Circa, where they're moving in because they're moving in smaller increments, the Pinnacle and Chris. And I remember I was talking to Cade last year and Cade was, I think he was refereeing a paper or, or he was not involved in writing this paper, but it was about like the predictiveness of line moves. And overall, he found that like each individual line move, the author found that each individual line move on average is negatively predictive yet. And I was trying to tell him, well, how that can be true yet line moves overall and aggregate are predictive. But if you, if you're looking at just every little move, most of those are going to be noise. Um, especially as I said, a book like Chris or pinnacle, like despite all their great profiling, the little moves are mostly going to be noise. And so it's, I think also we love to have narratives around things. And if you look, it's the same thing in the stock market. It's like market down on China fears or something like that. Like there's always a reason. And that's how you, you know, publications, the finance sections of wall street journal and stuff stay in business. I mean, they have to, they have to have something to talk about, but none of us, well, Occasionally, if you're the reason for a line move, you understand why it happens sometimes. Too, right? um, you you might create think, your own line move, right? Oh, right. And I and I would I would bet that there are people that are responsible for line moves that would say that moved too far and that doesn't actually make sense. And I think sometimes they're the people that have the best insight into why closing line value isn't the end all be all necessarily. Yeah. I've I've definitely changed my thinking on that for for many of the reasons that you state i listen there's a couple other things you said in there that trigger other thoughts i don't want to like hijack it but like you said said something about profiling i mean i think that's one of the the scourges of of you know this industry since legalization offshore books do a phenomenal job of profiling i think newly legalized sports books in this country do an awful job of it right like i know someone who hit a massive parlay the very first day that he opened an account uh, in New Jersey. He immediately got so limited that in effect it was a ban. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, well, there's a way to take money off your table if you're that sports book. Like they just have no, it, it just seems like it's so primitive in that regard as well. You said something else that triggered something else, but I've since forgotten it. But Wait. that was like, that's another thing I think. But let's think about this. Like, why would a book do that? I mean, it, let's like type two, type one versus type two error. Like the false, the false positive versus the not recognizing the not the whatever the opposite of a false positive is, right? It, it's like in a way, the book is they are more worried about getting hit by somebody that this guy is going to be really good and beat them than than they think that in essence they think the consequence of that is larger than I think we think they should optimally. <laughs> They're going to be yep. more likely to, I don't say happy to live with the false positives, but I think they think the downside is so much greater if they fail to identify a sharp. Whereas I think we, all of us here disagree, right? And they think that- that well, it's like classic you know, loss aversion, right? They're, they're worried about losing, not realizing that there's a potential gain to be had that they might be losing out on. And how big is the loss? Maybe the guy hit the SGP. They're like worried that he found some vulnerability there and is going to be exploiting these things. And suddenly they could be liable for a huge loss. Like, I don't know how, if it, it probably is not that kind of advanced thinking, but like you what have Jeff to. Said, yeah. What Jeff said is very interesting too. Sorry to interrupt. What Jeff said is, you know, about something else we talked about, which is this is not just an hour industry problem. And I do think about that a lot also, which is like, okay, am I just thinking that this is a sports betting thing and that we are so unique because legalization just happened and those of us who have been immersed in this for so long have this, this really protective territorial, however you want to describe it, feeling about what we do and we're so special. And so how dare mainstream media immediately become experts the next day about this or, you know, sports books do this wrong or that wrong, or this person on that sports media outlet said this, which is obviously so, so ridiculously wrong. Like, are we specifically that sensitive or is this, an industry, you know, not not just our industry. Is this is this everywhere? Do we see the same in finance? Do we see the same in medicine? Even like, you know, I mean, it's it's very possible that we are so self absorbed in a way on this. 
Oh, I, I agree. And what's, what's funny to me is I, I had always kind of thought like, oh, the sports betting industry, it's just, there's so much wrong with the industry as a whole, blah, blah, blah. And then you talk to friends that are in other industries and they're like, yeah, that's like every industry. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, like they have the same experiences. For sure. Okay. Last question. What are you excited about for the future of sports betting in the U.S. with legalization? I don't know. What are we four years in something like that? Five years in like, what, what do you, what do you see happening? What's, you know, what's your, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And like, where, where do you think this world goes? I'll tell you what I'm optimistic about. Um, it's been, I think it's been five years now since, since legalization. And I remember you guys probably remember Andrew Garud, who was the, uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Andrew Garud was the, yeah. was a British, British derivatives trader. Oh, you remember him. Oh, well, he, you know, when I, when I quit LVSC, then Cantor Gaming tried to hire me and Garud still gave me one of the most useful pieces of advice I've ever gotten. Although I ended up deciding not to take the job with Cantor Gaming because of that, but um, was so maybe backfired. He basically said that I always want, you want to make sure that you're growing your stock price. Think of yourself as a stock and with whatever job you take, think about that. Like, so whether that is from gaining, you know, new information, well, getting smarter, getting better at what you're doing, or you're growing your network, right? Like, you want to make sure that you're going to come out of things without going into a job with a higher stock price than when you went in. And so in essence, leaving yeah. to become a professional better, like I was risk, it was more risky in terms of my stock price. Like if I sit, failed, then where do I go? But I think your stock you, price. Yeah, yeah. I think, right. I mean, so yeah, I mean, it's great advice. And so Andrew Garud, would get, I was, was sure to answer Jeff's question. Andrew Garud was the lead developer of the Midas algorithm, which was in effect Cantor Gaming's very primitive in-game betting uh, algorithm at the time. Which, which is I what guess... they wanted to hire me for, by the way. And they had already oh. called it, they had already called, developed the name Midas before they'd created the algorithm. That I just want to, I think that's a little <laughs> bit of hubris there, but. We don't know what we're doing, but we're going to call it Midas. Um, so I remember at the M in 2010, sitting down with him and he was talking about in-game betting with me. And you know, in, a, in the US, this didn't exist. And I remember him saying, oh, 51% of the handle in the UK is in-game betting. And it certainly will be that way here in the US. And he said it all in a British accent. So it sounded way smarter than I'm sounding when I'm saying it. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, 51%? Oh my God, you crazy? So, but here's the thing. We're, we're probably still not at 51%. Maybe we are at some books. I don't know the exact numbers. But it took way longer than he anticipated because he said, oh, it'll be two, it'll be three years. So to answer your question, Jeff, of what I'm excited about, I would hope that exchanges become a much bigger part of the American betters betting palette, if you were betting a you know, pie, if you will. Uh, it's only available in New Jersey, uh, I think. I don't want to get this wrong, but Colorado also has, I think, I think sport trade is also in Colorado. I know profit and sport trade are in New Jersey. That to me would be the way that some of these bigger macro issues are kind of minimized because a lot of people complain, oh, I can't get this amount down or all oh, these prices are so juiced at conventional sports books. It's always going to be the sports book issue. But you can mitigate so many of those problems at betting exchanges, which in, in essence is peer-to-peer -peer betting for those unfamiliar. And you can name your price. And if someone takes it, there you go. You're off and running. You know, some of these NFL numbers typically end up being minus 102 on each side. So, I mean, what am I optimistic about? If that got legalized in more states, I think that's an exciting thing that could happen in this country. That would be the first thing that leaps to mind anyway. I left Jeff speechless. J J Sorry Jeff about that. I was on himself. mute. Yeah, no, no. I thanks, <laughs> yeah. thanks for joining us. He, uh, he looked, he looked so. It was interesting just watch his facial expressions. Like I was like, he thinks he's making this beautiful oh, point here. Lovely, he probably lovely. Was. We'll have the editor leave that in just because it's funny. Uh, Gil, thanks for joining us. Uh, look forward exactly. to uh, you want you want to tell everyone what you're doing, where they can find you. Uh, yeah, numbers game is on uh, Vsin. Uh, Vegas Stats and Information Network, which is on DraftKings Network, uh, YouTube TV, iHeartRadio, among other places, and at vsin.com and the vsin app. Uh, that's uh, 10 to noon Eastern, 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific, Monday through Friday. And then I do the uh, Beating the Book podcast, Megapod, which Rufus is kind enough to join me on uh, Thursday with Will Hill and Todd Wishnev. And then we do a guessing line show every Monday, Beating the Book podcast feed. Nice. 
Well, your, your content's always great. Um, so I encourage all of our listeners, all seven to go over there and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Gil. Thank you guys. So that was our interview with Gil Alexander. And it's kind of like interesting macro on sports betting and sports uh, betting media. Uh, I mean, Gil has certainly seen everyone and knows everyone in this industry for so long. So it's interesting to get his perspective. And you, you've kind of said the same thing about Fezzik a little bit. You've asked about having him as a guest on here. And obviously there's controversy oh, I see what you're doing, Jeff. You're trying to get credit. You're trying to get credit here for being like, oh, Rufus wants to have Fezzik on, but I'm the one that says no. No, I'm not. I, I'm I not thought he to... would have been, I'll say, I thought before the season began, um, his perspective on contests, given his success in that. Well, that's his, what I was going to segue into. How did you do in your contests? Oh, yeah. Like, I'll put it this way. We had, um, for Circa Millions, we had, we have five entries. I spread those five entries among seven picks. All five entries went 0 and 5. So the picks went 0 and 7. And, you know, where I wanted to go contrarian and went against the model, they lost where I didn't, they lost. So the good news though, is that I'm now tied for first place for the second quarter booby prize. So there's a booby prize for worst record each quarter. So that, so the question is, do I try to like, at this point you go on five, like we still have one entry that's like 56% or something like that, but that's not good enough. I think you kind of almost have to try to figure out how to go over again, which is very difficult, but also Are you gonna try to go circus over. Or- I don't know. You you act like I have some degree of control over this, Jeff. <laughs> um, <You do. laughs> not enough. In Survivor, too, we assumed that Detroit would have be really, really high-owned. They were very high-owned. That's what the model said. And so we kind of went contrarian, per usual. We Although we went contrarian with some actually good teams. We took Buffalo, who I also had as my pick of the week last week. So, mm-hmm. you know... They lost, as you know, two entries on, we had eight entries, two were on Buffalo. We we went two on the Dolphins, which won, um, two on the Ravens, which lost some, like, I don't know how the Ravens lost that game, but they did. And have you seen clips two, of all the Ravens receivers dropping balls? It's, they're, no, they're, but you go on Twitter. It'll, it'll do a little, bad, huh? it'll, it's pretty, I mean, it's like, it's pretty bad. And ultimately like that game was, was, yeah. It's just a, it was like yeah. a Raven Steelers. It's like when I, and, when I do something in golf and like, I'm like, Oh, I did this. And then I bogeyed. And then I did, and everyone goes, Oh, that's golf. You talk about like how weird that game was. And people go, Oh, that's just a Raven Steelers game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And then the other two were on the Titans, which we were, we, we made up two of the four selections on the Titans for survivors. So I was actually very happy with where we were in terms of equity um, and ownership and the value we got there. And you have to take some risks. And, you know, if the... Do you have anything left? We have two left. What were the two teams that you had? My, the, we, we, they were Dolphins picks. Oh, okay, got it. And Dolphins, the thing is, actually, we kind of, up until the fact that all the other entries lost, we kind of would have wanted the Dolphins to lose because we had 20... Well, we had a quarter of our entries on the Dolphins and the Dolphins ended up with like 30% ownership. But it was really the Lions. If the Lions had lost... That would have been like really, really good for us. What's your what's your pick of the week? <sighs> well, let me just preface this by saying I went 0 and 5 last week. <laughs> and, and, and I should preface um, this by saying I'm like eleven and eighteen on Kornheiser this year. Like I historically have been in like the fifty-seven to fifty-eight percent on Kornheiser over like mm-hmm. four or five years and cannot cannot win on that show to to save my life. And I also want to echo something that that Gil said about specialization and the fact that football NFL sides are not my specialization. Like I use the Massey Peabody model, which has done well in the past, but it is not the market has, in my opinion, kind of caught up there um, because it is a team-based model. But so all that said, I, I'm still going to give a pick um, because I'm required to by law. And I'm going to go with, I hate doing it again. I don't want to take Tampa Bay again, but that's kind of, I'm going to keep riding Tampa Bay. I like it. Because that's just the only one I show meaningful difference. My numbers are pretty damn close to the market across the board. The other the other one where I kind of show a potential edge is Cleveland plus five and a half. But I think Deshaun Watson's status is in question. And obviously, like, that's not a play if he doesn't play. And I don't think 
I think the market is pricing in there being a chance he doesn't play. So I don't actually think that that would be value for that reason. What's I'm your pick, take, Jeff? I'm going to take the over in that Ohio-Northern Illinois game. Over 44 now. Oh, I love it. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully we low-pointed that shit, but yeah, over 44. It's it's minus 105 on Chris right now, so it may be going down more. Um, anyways, okay. Thanks again uh, for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed that. We'll talk to you guys all again next week. And stay tuned as we have a conversation with Petra Bakasova, who's the CEO of Hull Tactical. We'll hear from her, and then we'll talk to you guys all again next week. How different are these models? Are they, I mean, I, I think the challenge is, for me at least on an ensembling is how similar most of the models are. And so you just have such a high degree of collinearity that if you build, if you try to look at an optimal fit, you're going to get, oh, 180% this model, negative 80% this model, things <laughs> like that, that don't make, right? So yep. are your are your models, are your models um, a lot more independent? Um, yes and no. I mean, like we would be fooling ourselves into thinking they're totally independent just because they all are forecasting some kind of a return on S&P 500. Uh, but they are different uh, just from kind of like a structural point. So like right now we have four models and, and one is the long-term model. So that forecasts like six month equity risk premium. So that will be driven by like macro indicators. It will be looking at uh, you know, all these price ratios, book to price, earnings to price. Um, it will be driven by things like Baltic Dry Index. It will be driven by things like the Senior Loan Officer Survey. And if at any point you want me to elaborate on any of these indicators, I would be happy to. But that is kind of like a slow macro model. And then we have a one-day model that, you know, moves a lot quicker and looks um, and is a lot more focused on things like sentiment and technical indicators. So they have some indicators that overlap, but there's like a decent level of independence between the two. And then the third model we have like looks purely at market anomalies. And that's like super fascinating because these are things that should not exist because why wouldn't the market price them away? And, and somehow they have existed for years. So those are things like the turn of the months effect, Reannouncement drifts, like selling may go away, come back in October, uh, trading, some momentum strategies. So again, like very different than any kind of macro or sentiment forecast. And and then the last model that's currently traded with the non-zero weight is is like a super complicated um, model that fits higher distributions of S and P five hundred returns and then tries to just predict direction of the S&P 500 one day ahead. So it's not even making a forecast of a return. It's just purely directional model based on high frequency data. So again, very different. How much uh, machine learning do you use? Uh, so in these uh, market timing models, I'm going to say very little, but that's because I don't consider regression-based models machine learning. Some people do uh, when it comes to some of the options models that we're building uh, in whole tactical. Those are machine learning models because they have a lot more data to work with. Awesome. Well, Petra, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Uh, huge parallels, and I can see Rufus's wheels turning on ideas <laughs> and I feel like he's going to want to come do a you know six month internship at Hall Tactical to learn some new techniques and some new ways of approaching things so I, we would uh, love to have Rufus if, if you want to come over uh we'll we'll set up a PC for you just just come over we can always use your help and your expertise I'm, I'm sure you you could help us a lot with what you've been doing I'm gonna hold you to that <laughs> okay Thanks, Petra. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Rufus. All the numbers in the simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are put to end just running off a leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. This episode of Bet the Process is brought to you by Hull Tactical. The hosts of this podcast are not investors with HTAA and were not directly compensated for their views. However, HTAA sponsored this podcast. The hosts and sponsors share a conflict of interest 
interest because the sponsor paid a one-time cash compensation for the content of the podcast, and the hosts may be incentivized to endorse or promote HTAA's investment management services. Massey Peabody rankings. We're looking for the edge. Analytically driven. Crunching all the numbers. 